It's a blessing to be at a place where you don't cringe at special musics. <laughs> I appreciate them here. Thank you. Did any of you understand what I meant by that? I, I hope you did. Um, I want to tell you a brief story, another one. Once upon a time, in a land not so very far from here, there was a, a lady named Vivian. This happened around Pasco, here in Washington. And she, had, she was a fourth-generation Seventh-day Adventist who had aimed when she was about 18 to be a missionary to Lebanon, which would be quite a self-sacrificing position to take. Of all the places to work, that would be one of the more difficult, but she was thinking to go there to give her life to that. And um, to make a long story quite short, the man who she had set her sights on, who she thought was mutually interested in her, ended up in a way mocking her in public when she was about 21 years old. And she was already a super sensitive lady who had had doubts that any guy would ever like her. And when that happened, it nearly made her, well, really she did entertain suicidal thoughts for some time after that. And it's in the context of that, even though several years later, that she came to teach at a little Adventist elementary school in the Pasco area. And there, a lady by the name of Nita Pruitt had a son, Glenn, who um, was not really an Adventist any longer. But he was single. And Nita had, what you might call it, a neat idea <laughs> to get Vivian and Glenn together, which you probably guessed already are my parents. And it worked, because I just need to hurry up with this story. Um, <laughs> but that was the beginning of a downtrend in the values that my mother held. My father pretended to quit smoking to win her hand in marriage. She wasn't slow enough in the courting process to see through that deception. And so she'd been married for several weeks when she found out he never really had quit smoking. And I think I told you this morning that he died of lung cancer. I think I mentioned that. And so if you follow that through, you'll realize that that never really changed during the entire time of their married life. So there was a time when my mom was aiming to be a missionary and had high values. She, her first child, which was late in her life, I think when she was about 29, was a miscarriage. I mean, her first pregnancy. And I was her second pregnancy, her first born child. When I was raised, in my home, when I was a child, there was no television. And often, there was family worship. My father wasn't involved in that, but that was something my mom tried to carry on on her own. My parents stayed together. I think the fact that I have made it spiritually to this point in my life 
has a lot to do with my mom and dad being faithful to each other despite their super differences in so many fundamental things. I tell you, being married is, for children, from my experience, is much better even if the marriage is a lousy one. But you can just weigh that out in some other situation and think it through some other place. And um, so I told you, my mom carried on family worship, and I was raised a vegetarian. We didn't have TV, but that was all when I was like one through six years old. When I got to about age eight, a television came into our home. By the time I was 10, we were watching whatever. By the time I was 10, there was meat in the home, and it was being served. And I was just watching the tail end of my mother's change in values. Have any of you ever seen someone go through a change like that in values? So that's what I was watching on, on, the, on the low end of it. It really is hard to carry on a one-person fight in a two-person family to hold up values. Does that, can that make any sense to you? It's difficult. My mom fought valiantly in many ways, but she didn't keep it up. Perhaps fortunately for her, and perhaps unfortunately, it's both. When I was 11, God brought someone else into my field of vision who was a consecrated man. And and sometime, maybe you can ask me for a one-hour version of my testimony, but I'm going to try to finish this one in three minutes. I was thoroughly converted at age 11 from outside influences. And I began to read the Spirit of Prophecy books that were sitting in our bookshelf. And it didn't take me much reading to find out that my mom was not practicing the things that were in these books. And um, I regret this part of my testimony intensely. But I became really quite arrogant for an 11-year-old in how I related to my mother. I mean, I was thoroughly disillusioned with her spirituality. I felt like she wasn't holding up the standard. And I think, in many ways, I broke her heart. Can you imagine how it would feel to to love someone dearly and try to raise them up the very best you could and then to have them, in a way, turn on you emotionally? How that would feel? And so part of what I want to share this afternoon in the next few minutes is to prevent a repeat of the one part of my testimony that I regret because the rest of it I don't regret. And if you could have my testimony minus the part I regret, I would be so happy for you. Turn with me in your Bibles to Ezekiel chapter 20. Ezekiel chapter 20. If God had made a plan for taking the gospel to the world that was dependent on the faithfulness of his people, the gospel never would go to the world. But God has a lot of foresight. That's an understatement to make a point. And he designed a plan that would take the gospel to the world, 
generation after generation after generation for thousands of years despite the unfaithfulness of his people. You're in Ezekiel chapter 20. I'd like you to look at verse 7. Speaking about the children of Israel while they were in Egypt or just leaving. Then said I unto them, Cast ye away every man the abominations of his eyes, and defile not yourselves with the idols of Egypt. I am the Lord your God. This is God's call to bring them out of Egypt. He said, I'm about to lead you into Canaan, and this is what I require. Turn away from your idols. Verse 8. But they rebelled against me and would not hearken unto me. They did not every man cast away the abominations of their eyes. Neither did they forsake the idols of Egypt. Then I said, I will pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the midst of the land of Egypt. Has God led them out yet? No, they're still there. Do you see it in the verse? They're in Egypt. He called them away from their idols. Did they accept his call? They did not accept his call, so he said that he was going to punish them there in the land of Egypt. It's a fascinating passage. But look at verse 9. But I wrought for my name's sake, that it should not be polluted before the heathen among whom they were, in whose sight I had made myself known unto them in bringing them forth out of the land of Egypt. God had already worked mightily in Egypt, showing himself favorable to the Israelites. And now if he would destroy them just before bringing them out, say in those plagues, for example, that were on Egypt, it would look like that God was not able to accomplish what he wanted or that maybe the Jewish religion wasn't right. Somehow it would hurt God's reputation if he carried out his justice on these people. Look at verse 10. Wherefore, I caused them to go forth out of the land of Egypt and brought them into the wilderness. If I were to ask you the question, why did God lead lead the people out of Egypt despite their unfaithfulness? You would have to answer, it wasn't because of their faithfulness. It was because of God's own reputation. God could have destroyed them right there in Egypt, but it wouldn't have gone well for the Egyptians. Let me say this again. God led Israel out of Egypt for the benefit of the heathen. Egypt didn't, I mean, the Israelites did not deserve to be given that kind of special treatment. Look at verse 12, verse 11. And I gave them my statutes and showed them my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. Moreover, also I gave them my Sabbaths to be a sign between me and them, that they might know that I am the Lord that sanctify them. Isn't it interesting how we've known verse 12 for like 20 years and never read verses 1 through 11? I don't know if that makes any sense to any of you, but that was the way it was for me for a long time. So the Sabbath was given as a sign of sanctification to a people who had refused it initially. Verse 13, But the house of Israel rebelled against me in the wilderness. They walked not in my statutes, and they despised my judgments, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. And my Sabbaths they greatly polluted. Then I said, I would pour out my fury upon them where? In the wilderness. He was going to destroy them in Egypt, but he did not do it for the benefit of the Egyptians. But now they're out of Egypt, 
And now they're rebelling against him again. And now he says, I'm going to destroy them where? In the wilderness. But let's read what it says. Verse 14. But I wrought for my namesake that it should not be polluted before the heathen in whose sight I had brought them out. Do you see that the reason they were spared even in the wilderness was not for their own benefit? It was for the, at least I should say, it wasn't alone or primarily for their benefit. It was for the benefit of the heathen. Now, God managed to meet both goals. He did destroy all of them in the wilderness. But instead of doing it all in one moment, where it would obliterate the nation, he did it over such a period of time that the nation always continued to exist. But didn't he destroy almost every one of them there? He did, but he did it in such a way as to spare his own reputation in the sight of the heathen that he cared for so much. It's really an incredible storyline here in Ezekiel 20. To save time, let's go on to verse 18. But I said unto their children in the wilderness, Walk ye not in the statutes of your fathers, neither observe their judgments, nor defile yourself with their idols. I am the Lord your God. Walk in my statutes and keep my judgments and do them. Some people, when they read Deuteronomy 5, don't understand what it's saying. When, when God says there, I didn't make this covenant with your fathers, I'm making it with you, not with your fathers. Um, they get the idea that that was the first time he ever made such a covenant. It's totally not what God is saying. He's saying, I made the covenant with them, and they didn't keep it. The covenant with them doesn't count for you. I'm making a covenant with you that you need to keep. And the implication is, if you don't keep it, I need to make a covenant with your children. And in fact, that's what the book of Joshua is about. In Joshua, God makes a covenant with their children. So the theme, perhaps, of this short talk is verse 18. Do you see in verse 18 very plainly that sometimes God intends for young people to be disillusioned with their parents? I didn't see but maybe two heads when I said that. I mean, two heads nodding. Um, so I'm just going to tell it to you. It is God's intention that at some point, the young people of parents who are not towing the line spiritually realize that they need to rise above the level of their parents. It is God's intention that a generation have a chance to do better than the generation before it. Verse 9 or verse 20. And hallow my Sabbath, and they shall be a sign between me and you that you may know that I am the Lord your God. We learned verse 12 and verse 20, but we didn't realize, I think, at least I didn't realize, that the reason you have the idea in there twice is because it was once to the fathers and once to the children. Verse 21. Nevertheless, the children, what's it say? Rebelled against me. They walked not in my statutes, neither kept my judgments to do them, which if a man do, he shall even live in them. They polluted my Sabbath. Then I said I would pour out my fury upon them to accomplish my anger against them in the wilderness. Can you guess what verse 23 is going to say? 22, I mean. Nevertheless, I withdrew mine hand and wrought for, what's it say? My namesake, 
that it should not be polluted in the sight of who? The heathen in whose sight I had brought them forth. Why did God spare the generation after the wilderness? Was it because they were better than the generations before them? He spared them for the benefit of the heathen. I guess I'm just going to say that if you read the rest of this chapter, you're going to find the same thought happening again. And if I could try to summarize Ezekiel 20 in a, in a short way, it would be that God doesn't pardon a generation of people that ignore his counsels and his directives. I mean, if they repent, he certainly will pardon them, but they don't just get away, get away with it. The many Adventists today, like in the 1890s and 1930s, have realized that you can find enough evidence that a generation has done this in Adventism that we have turned away from his counsels and from his judgments and from his statutes. And many, a class of men have concluded that because you can prove this, that this really happened, that therefore God has rejected us as a church. And I hope you can see in Ezekiel 20 that they got one idea right but missed another one. What God rejected was the generation. What he didn't reject was the next generation. What does he do? He gives the next generation a chance. Did they get off light? If they don't do it, they get rejected too. But then he gives the chance to another generation. And the reason that our generation still has a chance isn't because we're more favored than our forebears. The fact is, if we don't respond, we get destroyed too. But it doesn't mean that God then rejects the denomination. Our kids get a chance. That's a deep thought for you to consider and study later, and I, I hope you will do that. Turn with me in your Bibles to Romans chapter 14. Romans 14, and we're looking at verse 5. One man esteemeth one day above another. Another esteemeth every day alike. Listen carefully. Let every man be, what's the word? fully persuaded in his own mind. That is a good summary of everything I've had to say in the first two talks I've given this weekend. Really, it just sums it up beautifully. What God is asking is not that every man be fully concluded in his own mind, but that every man gathers enough data, enough information that he has a reason for the conclusion that he comes to. Do you understand you can't be fully persuaded by your impulses? Persuasion involves a thinking process, a looking at the information. And that's what God is asking, that every man be fully persuaded in his own mind. 
This was so good for me when I became a thoroughly converted young person. This happened in Alaska. It happened in the winter in Alaska. And in the winter in Alaska, it was very dark and very cold. And the normal daily activity routine for me was watch television a lot. And part of my conversion experience, which was mind-boggling to my parents, was that I was convicted by the Spirit of God that I should stop watching television. And I did stop watching it. And with a little bit of exception being that I discovered to my consternation that if there was a television that was on in the room I was in, despite my very best intention, I would end up watching it. So I found the only way that I could keep the promise I had made to myself was to avoid rooms that had living televisions in them. (laughs) Did that make any sense to you what I'm saying? And the way our house was set up was that the television was in the same room. Well, the dining room and living room were the same room, just divided by nothing but thin air. And, you know what I mean? Some of you have houses like that. It was such that the television was very plainly visible when you're eating meals. And I concluded, as a 12-year-old man, How's that for a thought, huh? (laughs) I concluded that I would not eat meals if the television was on. That's when my parents went from being bemused by my fanaticism to annoyed by it. My mom, remember there had been a time when she was against television too, you remember that? And it, I found out later when I would read her, she let me do this, I didn't sneak. She let me read her diaries. And I found that it had really hurt her feelings when she had brought television into our house. But the reason she did it was because I so liked to go to the neighbors' homes that had the televisions. And she, didn't, she couldn't stand it that I didn't like to be home where there wasn't a television. So she decided if I was going to watch it anyway, I might as well watch it at home. What I'm not trying to do is to say that she reasoned well. I think that was a mistake. What I am trying to say is that she was trying to do the right thing. And what would have helped me in my disillusionment stage would have been a good dose of merciful thinking Can I describe for you what I mean by merciful thinking? It's thinking about people who are doing the wrong thing, giving them as many benefits of the doubt as possible. Thinking like this, it's possible that they've had a very hard life. That the devil has been on their track and has really done them a lot of wrong. Was that true for my mother as far as you can tell from my story? That was true for her. It's possible that they have been worn down by a series of trials and temptations that if I had faced them would have worn me down much quicker than it wore them. It's possible that they've never had a true type of education, that they were never given the right kind of instruction. 
And in fact, it's even possible. I talked to you this morning about how we, we shouldn't start from scratch, how we build upon the generation before us, what God has taught them. It's possible that they started here, they built up to about here, and then I was born, and I got to start quite a bit higher than they did. Did you understand my illustration? And, and now, am I going to look down and feel hard feelings to them because they're not where I am? Do you see how, how inappropriate that would be, how mean a way of thinking that would be? That's what I was doing. I'm talking about merciful thinking. Merciful thinking is related to the gospel. I mean, blessed are the, the merciful, for they shall... And with what measure you judge, it shall be measured to you again. I, or I'm really talking about spiritual principles here. I think it's legitimate to say that no one taught me these things when I was 12. But it didn't make my attitudes less hurtful to my mom. And she wasn't capable of teaching these things to me because she didn't know them because no one had ever taught her. Anyway, someone's teaching you and you don't have nearly as good excuse. And um, these are important things. So everyone should be fully persuaded in his own mind. But when you come to your conclusions, you need to add to your conclusions a healthy dose of merciful thinking. Giving people, relating to them as if they are the victims of the devil rather than as his cooperative agents. When you think about them that way, they cease to become the enemy, and it's much easier to maintain your warmth toward them. One of the most fascinating chapters in the Spirit of Prophecy is in the book Fundamentals of Christian Education. It's a chapter that talks about, it's on page 438, 438 to 441, for those of you who, who do the right thing and, and read the things you're told to read in, in meetings. That was only four pages. In fact, you could commit that entire chapter to memory without as much trouble as you think. It's easier to memorize connected thoughts in the spirit of prophecy than it is some of the things you find in the Bible. Page 438 to 441, it discusses the educational choices that Jesus made as a child. It was, I did memorize it myself. It was just so full of fascinating things to me. I'm going to tell you five ideas I found in that chapter. Maybe I'll tell you six. Did you know the mother of Jesus was not a homeschooling mother? I mean that her stepchildren went to school. And Jesus would have gone to school, but he refused to go. It's in the chapter. The chapter brings out five reasons that Jesus refused to go to the schools of his time. One of them was because he didn't want to get into premature conflict with the religious rulers of the day. That is, if as a 15-year-old he had a reputation as a know-it-all, 
that would carry over so that when he began his ministry at age 30, he could be dismissed like that. Oh, we know that, Jesus. Did you hear about when he was 15? He, he thought he knew more than all the teachers in the Sanhedrin. It describes his thinking process in this little chapter. He did not want to prematurely cut short his work by, in his student age, becoming in conflict. There was another reason there. Jesus had a strong enough grasp of the principles of truth that he could have gone to those schools and not have lost his way. But he knew that I was coming after him. And it was for the sake of his followers that he didn't go, so they would not feel authorized to go. I've thought this principle thoroughly through, I think, for myself. I think, for example, that I could probably go and pursue a PhD degree. I don't have one. The way I said that, you'd think I had a master's or something. I don't even have an associate's. I think I could go pursue something like that and probably get away with my spiritual life. But what I understand the reasoning of Jesus is that if I go do it, someone that has looked up to me as a spiritual guide is likely to try the very same thing. And it might not work out so well for them. And Jesus kept that in mind in making his own educational choices. That's quite selfless, wouldn't you say? Another reason that's given in that chapter is that Jesus knew that in the schools there was a continual enlarging upon the sayings of men. And by continually enlarging upon the sayings of what this man taught and this man taught, have you ever heard someone say you can find what you're looking for? This chapter really undermines that idea. What it indicates is that if this is the volume of truth that you could get in school, that every every piece of meaningless material that gets fed to you displaces some real content that you could have gained. And that even if you manage to not be harmed at all by this material, you would have been benefited to an extent that you can't even estimate had that material been replaced by solid content. Jesus refused to go. It says in that chapter, as another principle, that he, show, he was trying to show that it's better not to let error get a foothold in the mind than to try to eradicate it after it has been given a chance there. That flies in the face of a common reasoning of the devil that you have to give it a chance so you can learn best how to combat it. But that trick of the devil ignores the fact that the first and major part of that conflict with error is in your own mind. And you can't afford to lose any there. The last point that's in that chapter that I want to bring out to you is that Jesus knew that the quantity of, I don't know how to put this, I forget how it's worded there, The quantity of information that was being fed to them was such that they did not have time for their private piety. That is, that the busyness of the system squished out their devotion. 
and Jesus refused to sacrifice a few years of quality devotion for the formal education he could have received at those schools. I really think that if you'll read through that chapter, you'll find that many of his own reasons have quite an application to our own day. So I'm gonna summarize what I've said already. It took longer to say it than I thought it would. And then share with you a few brief misconceptions that are mentioned in the Bible and we'll close this period. Well, what I've said is that it's appropriate that we aim for something higher than our parents. If our parents, as a generation, had gotten it right, the world would have ended. And God says, we read it in Ezekiel 20, 18, do not do after your parents. Don't follow their principles, follow my principles. Not their judgments, but my judgments. Really, he gave the very same counsel to the next generation that he had given to the first generation. But suppose that you're in this generation that's getting the next chance. And like me, as you begin to study, you're just incredibly disappointed in your forebears. I mean that why have they fallen so low? Then keep in mind that blessed are the merciful for they shall obtain mercy. And that if you hadn't been given opportunities that you have, you don't know if you would have come to the conclusions that you have. If you hadn't been lifted up by some providence, how do you know that that truth ever would have come your direction? You don't know the struggles your parents have had or the troubles. I did not know until my father was in the ground buried that he had been repeatedly unfaithful to my mother during our married, their married life while I was growing up. Do you think that was a struggle for her? A hard one of intense, I'm so glad that I never learned about it. And that's just an illustration of things that will never come out. You don't know how hard your parents have had it. Or anyone else for that matter. Then as we're moving forward, we must give everyone else a great deal of latitude And in the case of my mom, you would be happy to see how her life has been bouncing back to those values she held in yesteryear. With some pressures off, have you ever seen something that was weighted down when the pressure comes off it? How it rises again? Turn us in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. Matthew chapter 3, and we're looking at verse 9. And think not to say within yourselves, We have Abraham to our father. For I say unto you that God is able of these stones to raise up children unto Abraham. If I could preach for 90 seconds on the verse. 
in a conservative environment like this church feels to me to be, the most common way this verse would get preached on would be that being a member of the church won't save you. And I would like to maybe read it to you a little differently than that, although that's certainly true. Even being a member of the privileged group won't save you. I mean, if you're part of the group that feels this way or thinks this way or has this set of values or has come up higher than the rest, really, that kind of situation is more analogous in some ways to what this verse is talking about than even denominational membership. And this is a common misconception that being part of the right group is... Jesus said, don't even think like that. Or was this John the Baptist? I think it's John the Baptist talking. John the Baptist said, don't think like that. It's just a common misconception that being part of the right group is, is a, a worthwhile aim. I don't know, that's, that was a bad way to conclude that thought. I can't think of a good way to conclude it, so read the verse again at some point and see what you understand there. Turn forward a page or two to chapter 5, verse 17. 5 and verse 17. Think not that I am come to destroy the law or the prophets. I am not come to destroy, but to fulfill. You might not have seen the word think not in the first verse. That's how this relates to our weekend. Jesus Jesus and John the Baptist and a few others are talking about improper ways to think. And this is one of the improper ways. To think that the religion of Jesus releases us from moral obligations. That's just an, that's a common misconception that Jesus put to rest. Turn forward maybe less than a page to chapter 6 and verse 7. But when you pray, use not vain repetitions as the heathen do, for they think that they shall be heard for their much speaking. This is a very common misconception that a routine habit of prayer even if you don't put your mind and heart into it, will benefit you. But it just isn't true. Routine prayer isn't even heard. It isn't our speaking, the routine of it. It's the communication. Prayer without communication isn't prayer. Turn forward a couple of pages to chapter 9, verse 4. Chapter 9, verse 4, Jesus had just told a man that he was forgiven. It says, And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in in your hearts? It's a common evil thought to think that Jesus can't forgive you. And young people often are persuaded that way. Well, my dad was persuaded that as a young man, and he never gave up on that misconception. To feel like because you've been so evil or done so many wicked things that you're just too far gone or lost for God to help you. It's the same thought that the Pharisees had, that Jesus can't forgive someone. Well, he can. And to believe that he can't, to believe that he can't, that's an, it's wrong, it's erroneous, it's evil. Turn forward maybe a page to chapter 10, verse 34. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. 
I came not to send peace, but a sword. It's a common misconception that the religion of Jesus doesn't cause arguments. And someone confronted me on this this weekend, as if what I was saying was saying that if people are arguing or something like that, that it proves that their hearts aren't right. I don't think person, anyway, I just misrepresented the person that misunderstood me. But let me just set everything straight. If there is contention, an argument that's raised by telling the truth, it was the intention of Jesus that it would be raised by the truth and not in any sense by the spirit in which the truth was delivered. It wasn't the spirit of Jesus that caused the division. It was the truth of Jesus that caused the division. And we so badly paint the truth when we defend it with hard feelings and unkind thoughts and without that kind of merciful thinking I described just a few minutes ago. Turn forward maybe five or six pages to Matthew chapter 18. How think ye, Jesus asked, if a man have a hundred sheep, did I tell you which verse? Verse 12. How think ye, if a man have a hundred sheep and one of them be gone astray, does he not leave the ninety and nine and go into the mountains and seeketh that which is gone astray? It's a common misconception that Jesus cares less for the people who are more out of the way. But it isn't true. And Jesus appealed to an illustration of a caretaker of sheep to show that it wasn't true. Jesus illustrated the fact that he cares more for those who are out of the way. Let's look at one more, and it will be enough for right now. Turn to Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13, and we're looking at verse 4. Luke 13, 4. Or those eighteen upon whom the tower of Siloam fell and slew them, think ye that they were sinners above all men that dwelt in Jerusalem? And Jesus didn't leave that for them to answer because they might have said yes. So what did he say in the next verse? I tell you, nay. It's a common misconception to think that those who have particular suffering are particularly guilty. Jesus indicates that a lot of people are particularly guilty, a lot more than the number that particularly suffer. These last eight thoughts I've shared are hardly related to the first things I've shared at all. But they have something to do with proper thinking. You can find a lot about right ideas in this book. 
What I've said this afternoon, the biggest, the most important idea, is that when we've talked about earlier how God builds one generation of truth upon another, how he's working generationally to get something done, that he does hold every generation accountable. And if a generation doesn't do right, the generation dies. If your question is, how were your grandparents punished? The answer is, they're dead. I mean, they didn't get to see Jesus come back. That's how the generation was punished, and individually they'll all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. My generation is going to be judged the same way. Individually, we're all going to stand before the judgment seat, but I would really like for our generation to see him come in person. And to that end, we're going to have to rise higher than our fathers. But the devil is ready for every young and middle-aged person here. The moment that we begin to rise above those around us in terms of moral development, as soon as we begin to rise by practicing his statutes, his judgments, that's what Ezekiel 20 was about, wasn't it? It was about all his counsels. That's how you rise in a practical sense. As soon as we begin to rise in that way, as soon as we get above average in any sense, he's ready to give us meanness in how we relate to those who are not there. And if he succeeds in giving us meanness at that point, whatever reforms we might have made progress in, in terms of character, we have just sunk to the depths. And that won't do it. So the proper way to be disillusioned with your parents is to realize that they are not your example. They are one of God's intended sources of instruction. But Jesus is your example. Your parents are suffering sinners who are likely doing their best, but maybe not even doing that. You need to give them the benefit of the doubt to pity them for the ways that the devil may have conquered or perplexed them or harassed them in the past, and to believe that God can finish the work in them like he can finish the work in you. When you show mercy to your parents, you set yourself up in a good way to receive mercy yourself. And surely you know you need that when you're rising higher. This isn't church, and we're not so formal, but I believe... Yeah. Would it be okay with you if we knelt for a closing prayer? Let's kneel. Our Father in heaven, I ask that you would save the heathen. I thank you for the care that you've shown for them for thousands of years by preserving your rebellious people that are associated with your wonderful truth. And I ask that you would teach us how to rise above the counsels and judgments of our fathers to do your counsels and your judgments. Give us that gift of mercy Give it to us in our heart that we would be merciful to others. And I ask for this gift because we have a great need for it. So I ask in the name of Jesus. Amen.